As we get started this morning, I just want to ask us to consider our posture before God. It's a heart posture thing, but a, a physical posture too. And so where you are, I want to get started with a word of prayer, but I, I invite you to change your posture, whether that's to stand or to lift hands. Let's go to God and just, just be present with Him right now physically. Holy Father, we thank You for the gift of today. After standing up here for a couple of weeks and, and as the sun beat down on my forehead, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the cool, overcast weather. Father, You have given us this day as a gift. A gift that, that we don't deserve. Each of us who's here, each of us who's watching, has been given the, the gift of, of breath in our lungs today. And I pray that we use that to give glory and honor to You. Each of us has been given the gift to be able to think today. And I pray that we use that ability to think about You. Each of us has been given the ability to love today because You have loved us. And I pray, Lord, that You give us the, the ability, the strength, the wherewithal to love You with that. And so right now, as we come into Your presence, Father, I pray for Your Holy Spirit to be present in this place. I pray that You would give us ears to hear Your Word, eyes to see, minds that think and focus, and that our hearts would be fully Yours. God, we praise You today. We give glory to You today. We, Lord, we pray that You are pleased when You see our hearts. In Jesus' holy name, Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you. If, uh, if you've ever heard any of my prior sermons before, You've probably heard me talk about math, that, that I like math, or I liked math growing up, and it was one of those simple joys that I had, and I guess they say you tend to like the things that you, you kind of are good at, and I see John shaking his head, he, he disapproves, he's more of a history guy, and I appreciate that. But I was relatively good at math, and I, I say relatively because I've lived in the Bay Area long enough now that I'm surrounded by all these brilliant people in, in science and technology and engineering and mathematics. I've come across some incredible people, like my friend David. David went to Caltech for undergrad. He went to Stanford. He went to MIT. He came back to Stanford. He had like a 5.0 GPA in college. I know, yeah, honors courses. Uh, he was somebody, by the time he came back, he was tutoring postgraduate students at Stanford in math. So people who were getting doctorates in science and mathematics were going to David for help. So David was a genius. And compared to him, I'm terrible at math. But compared to some of my peers, I was, I was reasonably competent with numbers. And so I, I enjoyed them. But here's the cool thing about math that, that I love as I look back at everything I learned over the, the fullness or the, the duration of my life, that everything I learned continued to build upon a foundation that was laid way, 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 way back, right? It, it built on everything else that I'd learned all along the way. Like when you go to preschool and they give you one wooden block and then they give you the other wooden block and you put them together and you realize you have two wooden blocks. Like as silly and, and elementary as that is, that basic truth still becomes the foundation for kindergarten subtraction or third grade multiplication and, and division and fractions and percentages and quadratic equations and all kinds of cool stuff. On down the list it goes. You're always building 
on what you learned the, the day before, the week before, the year before. And so each step along that journey informs your future steps. It prepares you for future steps. And it's designed never to be a place where you stop, but it's a springboard that encourages you to grow in the future. But something interesting happened to me when I was in college. Because I'd kind of mastered algebra and geometry and trigonometry and pre-calculus. And then college rolled around and we took this placement test and I tested into the highest level class that I could out of high school into college. They put me right into calculus. And if I'm being honest, I kind of walked in there thinking I was the man. I thought I was pretty good at math and it was going to come easy to me. And so I remember taking my very first calculus class and it was like, all right, Josh, you're an adult now. No one's taking attendance, so you can leave early if you want to leave. You don't have to be there if you don't want to be there. And then so some days, middle of class, I'd pack my things up, I'd walk out of the room. Or some days I just wouldn't feel like going. And I expected all of this just to come easy to me. But something strange started happening when quizzes and tests rolled around. Can you guess what that was? I didn't do very well. In fact, I did awful. And so I would take the next one, and I'd fail. And I'd take the next one, and I'd fail. And it was clear to me that I, I wasn't learning anything. And so before I knew it, I, I dug myself such a hole that I didn't know what to do to pass this class anymore except to withdraw and try again next semester before I got that F. And ha hopefully having learned a hard lesson. So I waited a semester. I signed up again. New professor. Fresh start. And guess what? Even though I came to class every day, it still wasn't clicking for me. And I had this professor this time who had this, this crazy grading system. And it became impossible very quickly to pass his class too. So I had to withdraw yet again. And so I needed a semester off. I was so defeated, so discouraged. Over for 2. But a year later, I had to take my physics class. And guess what you need to pass physics? Calculus. So I took calculus again, too. I enrolled for my third time. And this time, I was humbled. This time, I was bound and determined that I was going to do whatever it took to grow enough to pass this class. And sure enough, 16 weeks later, I walked out of that class, limped out of that class with a C, but I had done it legitimately. It just wasn't easy for me. And what I learned in that process is I had some growing up to do. I had some maturing that I had to do as a student. And as I look back and I reflect on that experience for myself, I realize something now that I didn't know back then. And that's this. I was no longer trying to understand. When I walked into class that first time, I was no longer trying to be a good student. I was no longer trying to understand. I just coasted on what easy, came easy to me for so long that when I had to actually try at something, I didn't really know what that looked like. And so I had to learn that process all over again. And, and I'm just curious if you've ever been there. Have you ever been through that experience by show of hands where you've had to like learn how to learn, how to grow? Have you ever been confronted with a time where you were just so unfocused that you just really weren't trying anymore? Well, I bet that happens to all of us sometimes. 
In fact, just this week, I spent over an hour on the phone with Corey. You guys remember Corey, college student who was hanging around last year? He's not here right now because, you know, COVID. He's a San Francisco State student, but he's from SoCal, so he's doing school from Riverside right now. But we talked on the phone for probably over an hour this week. And I have Corey's permission to share this. But pretty much all of last year, if you didn't know, Corey and I got together every week, just like I do with Muhammad and a few others, Renato and so on. And we would study the Bible together. We would pray together. We, we would disciple one another. And, and just otherwise share life together. But over the last, say, eight months or so, uh, Corey was pretty much non-existent. He wasn't really communicating with me anymore. He was back in SoCal and kind of lost touch with him. And so he calls me this week. But he called me from a, from a different place. He called me from a, a renewed place, a refreshed perspective in many ways. And it was an answer to prayer as he just basically said the same kind of things that I've just expressed to you about some of my journey. He, he said he, he lost focus. He said he grew undisciplined in his faith. And he called and he said, number one, Josh, I just want to apologize. And number two, I want to start studying together again. And it was just this awesome moment for him where I'm, I'm like super proud of him where he could just be honest with himself about some areas where he feels he needs to grow and where he feels he needs to move forward. And so this week, if you're just joining us, we're in week four of an eight-part series that we're calling Greater Than, which is a, a march through the book of Hebrews. And, and Greater Than is really a series with a singular focus. It's a focus on the, the greaterness of Jesus. The greaterness of Jesus. And so week one, we talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And week two, we talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And last week, in week three, we talked about how Jesus was greater than Aaron. Greater than the, the original high priest, if you will. And so week three reminded us that not only is Jesus the Son of God, but He is the great high priest who offers Himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and for my sins, and who sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for each of us, representing us as blameless and pure to Him because of what He did for us. And so as we pick up today's message, at the end of Hebrews 5, this is verse 11 that we're going to start in in just a few moments, the, the writer is, is eager and to explain and expand more on, on this, this priesthood imagery and language about who Jesus is. But here at the end of Hebrews 5, he takes a moment to go in, in a bit of a tangential direction. He goes on a tangent. He has something else he wants to say. He needs to lay a foundation for what he's about to say beginning in Hebrews chapter 7. And so today's message is going to kind of jump off topic, although it's, it's staying true to the biblical text, because it's not so much about the greaterness of Jesus this week, it, it's about his tangent. And so, read along with me in, in verse 11, this is what it says. He says, we have much to say about this, this being the, the high priesthood of Jesus who suffered and made perfect the faithful of humanity. We have much to say about this. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. It's a statement that sets the tone for everything that's about to come next. 
He's offering a blunt and a brutal assessment of the spiritual lives of these Jewish Christians that he's writing to. He's saying, you guys have stopped trying. You guys have stopped trying. And because you've stopped trying, he says, I can't even begin to explain to you what you need to understand about who Jesus is. You're just, you're just not working at it anymore. He says in verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In other words, the writer is reminding the reader that because they stopped trying in their faith, that they've stopped trying in their understanding, they are still learning the basics. And they just aren't really growing up. It's like a toddler or a child who really ought to be eating solid food by now. Maybe even a teenager who really ought to be eating solid food by now. But what does he do? Every chance he gets, he runs to his mom for a hit of milk. Like they haven't grown up like they're supposed to. In fact, his assessment is that they should have grown, grown to a point where they would be teaching God's Word, teaching truths about Jesus to, to other people, multiplying their faith, being fruitful, but they aren't going anywhere. They aren't moving forward. They're just stuck in one place. In other words, they were me as a calculus student. They just kept withdrawing and repeating the same course again and again and again. And so the, the writer offers up kind of a, a damning realization. He says, because you guys haven't been striving, because you haven't been working to move forward in your understanding, you're missing some really big facets of the Christian walk. Number one, you don't know righteousness, he says. And number two, you can't really distinguish good and evil. You're not trained up enough to distinguish good and evil. And so as Hebrews 6 begins... He continues this theme, this line of thinking. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so essentially what the writer is identifying for the reader here is what the elementary teachings are. And getting caught up in this, in each of these little points can kind of distract a bit from what the core message is all about. So I'm, I'm trying not to get stuck in this list here. And so while all of these are going to be revisited later in the book of Hebrews, the author's main point that I really want to drive home right now is he's talking about the ABCs or the one, two, threes of the Christian faith. This is the, the, the beginning point of Christian faith that all of the readers had learned and probably everyone here learned early on when you came to faith in Christ. Like this is the stuff that they all learned from the beginning. But it's not the kind of stuff that they should be having to relearn again and again and again any more than you and I shouldn't have to show up to preschool 
with one block and two blocks, you know, come together. We don't relearn this stuff again. It's understood. And so what does he want them to do? Well, he makes two key statements. He says, move forward or, or leave behind the elementary teachings, or sorry, move beyond and go forward. And I know this seems rather basic for us. Like I'm sure all of us are kind of sitting here and we're thinking to ourselves like, well, yeah, no duh. Like Christians should be growing in their faith. Like Josh, you're Captain Obvious here. How obvious can you get that Christians should be growing? But you know what I've learned over these last however many years in ministry and just being a Christian and being around other Christians is that sometimes what we understand intellectually, what's happening between our ears doesn't necessarily align or penetrate to the depths of our hearts. And so what we think we know doesn't necessarily reveal itself in action. Does that make sense? And so I'll try to illustrate what I mean. In 2005, uh, George Barna and the Barna Research Group, if you're familiar with them, they've been doing research on, on Christianity and the church, specifically in America, for, for many, many, many years. And they asked American Christians to describe what aspect of their spiritual lives they felt best about and what aspects of their spiritual lives they felt less good about. And so the survey involved what they called seven dimensions of spiritual development. And it was just kind of asking people, hey, rate yourself on a scale of one to five in these seven categories. And so the people surveyed largely said, hey, we feel really good about a couple of things. We feel really good about maintaining healthy relationships, and we feel really, really good about serving other people. Those two things we feel like we do a pretty good job of. The next category, three things that we feel eh, okay about. Constantly living out faith principles, worshiping God, and leading one's family. Most Christians then said, yeah, we feel okay about those things. But do you want to know what the bottom two dimensions were? The areas where, where Christians overwhelmingly expressed a lack of confidence and a lack of practice. Sharing faith with other people and knowing the content of the Bible. Sharing faith with other people and really knowing what's in Scripture. By and large, people expressed they were comfortable with how they treated other people, reasonably comfortable with how they handled the internal parts of their faith. But when it came to the external part of like engaging others and teaching them, that's where all bets were off. And as I reflect on those two things, I really see a lot of parallels with what we're reading in Hebrews. Because I mean, why would I feel uncomfortable to share my faith right now? If I were uncomfortable, why would I feel uncomfortable? Often it's because I'm afraid I might not know enough. Can we all agree with that? If I'm uncomfortable, a lot of times it's, I'm afraid I might not know enough. What if I get asked a question and I don't know the answer to this person's question? Am I going to embarrass myself? Am I going to say something wrong about Jesus? I don't want to be a heretic. I don't want to teach the wrong thing. And so what do I do? And I know what this feeling is like. Because as I reflect on my first few months in ministry, getting my first job at a church and, and coming in and teaching a community of people, I was absolutely petrified that I would walk into this thing. I'm the guy with the piece of paper on the wall that says he has a degree in Bible and ministry. And I'd sit down and I'd try to teach a group of people who know that stuff better than I do. I was terrified. 
that something like that would happen. I was terrified that I'd be found out or that people would, would call me a phony or think that I, I wasn't really like, fully invested in this. I was, I was really scared and timid to, to have confidence to teach anything, even though that was my job. So I get it. I understand that timidity. I understand why people would feel insecure. Because like I knew the basics back then, but the advanced stuff, I was still growing in. I was a young guy, and I wasn't sure that I had a whole lot to offer there, except more of the basics. And so I want you to see, I'm curious, do you see how eerily similar those results were, or that reality is maybe for us or for me, with what the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about and what he's confronting with readers here? Because he's saying, hey, you guys are still stuck in your ABCs. You guys are still stuck in your 1-2-3s. And while you should be able to go out there and teach other people, you aren't. You just aren't. And you keep showing up for the basics. You keep showing up for class 101 again and again and again. You just keep coming back to that. And the question is why? Well, for the Hebrews writer, it seems to be that he thinks that they've stopped trying. They stopped moving. They stopped going forward in their faith and their maturity and their understanding about Christ and faith. And so that research that I just referenced from Barna, that was 15 years ago. That was from 2005. I want you to fast forward to 2020, 15 years later, where Barna reminds us that in just the past 12 years alone, since 2008, 45% or church attendance has fallen from 45% of Americans showing up to church on any given Sunday to 25% in the last 12 years. Reading the Bible weekly has fallen from 45% of Americans to 35% of Americans. And showing up and praying weekly has fallen from 85% of Americans down to 69% of Americans who say they engage weekly in prayer. And so whatever those numbers were in 2005 that I just referenced, I can pretty much guarantee you they're, they're far weaker, far lower here in 2020. And I spent a lot of time this week thinking about why that was. Like why, why in 2008, why 12 years ago would everything suddenly fall off a cliff. Because when you look at the research, it goes back to 1993. From 1993 to 2008, those numbers are relatively static. They kind of do this. They bounce along a horizontal line. And 2008 happens, and they fall off a cliff. And I, I thought to myself, why is that? What has changed in our country in the last 12 years that we've seen interest in going to church, engaging in Scripture, and praying just completely fall off? And so first I thought about politics. I was like, well, there's a presidential election in 2008. Maybe that had something to do with it. And I thought, no, that doesn't really add up. I thought, well, maybe it was the Great Recession. 2008, the economy crashes. You know, maybe that had something to do with it. And as I kind of thought more about that, I thought, well, that kind of seems like the kind of thing that would drive attendance up in church. I, I want to pray. I need a job. I need, I need God to, to deliver me. But then as I thought about it, the third reason that popped in my mind hit me like a ton of bricks that in January of 2007, a new piece of technology was introduced that fundamentally changed the way that human beings interact with the world. 
And so right about a year or two later, the majority of Americans now had a mini computer in their pocket that they carried with them that fit conveniently wherever they needed it to go at all times. And so as iPhones and as Android phones became personal must-have, the, the research indicates that the priority we once placed on God has not maintained or continued to be a must-have. God is no longer the must-have for Americans that he used to be. And so guess where that left us? Well, I think as Hebrews chapter 5.11 stated, we are a people, by and large, no longer trying to understand. Because we're addicted to a new source of information, a new source of quote-unquote truth, and at times, for those of us still engaged in our spiritual lives, that means and, and leaves us stuck on a diet of, of spiritual milk and baby food because we, we were simply not as interested as we once were in moving forward. And it seems that for different reasons, the audience for Hebrews is wrestling with a very similar reality. I don't think they had smartphones back then, but something else was getting in the way for them. And so the writer continues in verse 4. He says, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, if you know anything about these verses I just read, you know this is a hugely controversial text, actually. Because if you go home and you, you type in Hebrews 6 in YouTube, you're going to see a bunch of pastors and, and academics and scholars all spending 45 minutes or an hour talking about these verses because of one key question that seems to emerge from this text. Does Hebrews 6 say that Christians who backslide, that Christians who fall away, cannot actually come back to their faith and be saved? Does this say that Christians who fall away are forever condemned? And this becomes a huge issue for some people, especially for those in the evangelical community who kind of hang their hat on that once saved, always saved aspect of theology. And so this verse understandably freaks a lot of people out who think to themselves like, wait, <laughs> have, have I ever backslidden? Have, have I ever doubted? Have I ever questioned my faith? A am I lazy? D does this mean that I'm not saved? And I want to ask you to raise your hands if you've ever had questions like that enter your mind. Have I ever back? Am I backsliding? Am I discouraged? Am I, am I too sinful? Like, can I be saved as a Christian? Of course you have. Because we all have those questions as Christians. We all have moments of doubt and moments of sin and moments where we fall completely out of alignment with God's will and His desire for our lives. But rest assured, this is not 
describing the fate of Christians who have struggled or who have wobbled in moments of faith. That's something that we all do. The key to understanding this passage is found in verse 6. It talks about those, quote-unquote, who have fallen away. And this is one of those moments where knowing a little bit of Greek can help you out an awful lot. Because that word that's used there, that verb that's used there, is in a tense that is known as aorist. I don't know enough languages to know if other languages have an aorist tense, but this is opposed to something like a present tense of a word. This is an aorist tense, and it's something we don't really have in English, but it's something that's more like our past tense. But it's past tense with a sense of completion attached to it. Like, this just happened. It's done. It's complete. It's in the past. It's final. That's an aorist tense. And what that means here is that the act of falling away was not just some gradual thing. It was a single, decisive moment that happened in a person's life. In fact, the top commentary on the book of Hebrews that's out there says this. It says, the aorist tense indicates a decisive moment of commitment to apostasy. And then a few lines later, he says, apostasy entailed a decisive rejection of God's gifts, similar to the rejection of the divine promise by the Exodus generation at, uh, at Kadesh. And if that's all confusing, that's okay. But what he's talking about is a few chapters previous in Hebrews chapter 3, 7, where we're talking about the Israelites getting ready to enter the promised land and they send spies and the spies come back and they give a bad report and there's no faith there. And God says, you know what? This generation will never see the promised land. He's saying it was a decisive rejection of God's gifts, kind of like that was. And so here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, the, the writer is warning the reader that if, if they fall away like that, that if they decisively reject God, th then, then no, they, they can't be brought back to Him. Why? Because anyone who decisively rejects God can't repent anyway. They can't turn away from what they're doing. The decision has already been made. In the same way, anyone who can turn away or change their ways cannot be said to have decisively rejected God. Does that make sense? These are kind of mutually exclusive understandings. You can't have, be decisive and also you know, be turning away and, and, and changing your life. And so some of the best examples that I've seen are, are two of Jesus' disciples. You have Judas and you have Simon Peter. Because if you know anything about the life of Judas and the life of Simon Peter, both were followers of Jesus. Both were, were men who received enlightenment and illumination from Christ. Both men tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age. And both denied or rejected Jesus in, in some way, in some sense. But only Judas did so in a decisive way, in an aorist kind of way. We know that Peter repented. We know that Peter was restored to Christ. And we know that Peter became an apostle and a martyr for Christ. And so the problem with falling away is expounded upon a little bit more in verse 6. It says, To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
And this time the verbs aren't aorist. The verbs are in the present tense. That those who have fallen away are actively crucifying and actively subjecting Christ to public disgrace. Because, I mean, think about this. We, we've all been Christians long enough, most of us, some of us. We, we can understand this a little bit. If you have tasted the goodness of Christ in your life and then have turned your back on, on all that you've received, all that you've learned, all that you know, all that grace, aren't you essentially just a member of that crowd who's standing before Pilate saying, no, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Aren't you crucifying him again? And you've, you've had all that opportunity to receive God's grace. And you're saying, no, give me the criminal. Crucify him. We're crucifying him all over again. And so verses 7 and 8 form an analogy. But they lean on familiar imagery and language throughout the Bible. The writer says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. And so what the writer is saying here kind of, kind of brings all, of the, all that we've talked about full circle, and it makes it a little, bo- a little more relatable to each of us. I hope, because each of us as Christians can relate in some way, shape, or form to what the writer is saying in Hebrews 5 and in Hebrews 6. Each of us understands that sometimes when we should be moving forward in our faith, when we should be growing in our faith as Christians, the exact opposite is actually happening. That at best, we're stuck. At best, we aren't moving anywhere in our faith. And at worst, sometimes we're actually moving backward. We're actually returning to infancy. We're returning to the ABCs rather than moving into spiritual adulthood. And so we can kind of be like Benjamin Button in our faith. I don't know if you guys remember the movie Benjamin Button, but it was like this little old man baby who as he got older got younger. You'll have to see it. It's confusing. Brad Pitt movie. Good movie. Interesting. And so when we've received you know, years and years and years of sermons and years and years and years of, of fellowship and of mentors and of books and of prayer and of devotionals and of conferences and all these things, all these rich opportunities to grow in our faith and our maturity in Christ. And all we do with that is to soak it up and produce nothing with it but thorns and thistles. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know we've wasted a precious opportunity to move past spiritual infancy. We've chosen to stay put right where we are. And I can't tell you how many people that reality has been true of who I've encountered over my years in ministry. And I'm sure the same is probably true for everybody who's here. But there are so many people, so many Christians, so many disciples of Christ who have done nothing with their faith 
except show up and keep the seat warm week after week. And so over decades, they haven't learned God's Word. And their hearts and their minds are still running after like worldly things. It's worldly humor and worldly music and, and worldly TV and movies. And have done nothing to, to try to, to, to break out of that. They just, they just don't try. They no longer try. And so the writer wants the reader to understand. He says those people, they won't receive the blessing of God that comes from producing a good crop. <laughs> They'll receive the curse of God because that's what happens to thorns and thistles. They get cursed. They get thrown into a, a brush pile and burned. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about faith from a place of works. It's not about that. It's that when you have faith, there should be evidence of that faith in the things that you do. You produce good things. You produce godly things in your life. And so this, this thorn and thistle imagery is important because it comes right out of the creation account. It comes right out of the fall of man in Genesis 3, where, where God talks to Adam. And he says, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat, from, from, eat food from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Church, Hebrews isn't written from a place of condemnation. It's not written from a place of judgment. It's written from a place of care and a place of concern. Because as we've been talking about all through this series, the writer is looking at a group of people who are going through the motions in their faith, but they're losing that, that laser-like focus that they have to have and how incredibly critical Jesus is in our ability to understand and live in righteousness and walk with God. He's telling them, I don't want you to waste all the goodness that God is pouring into your life. But if you do nothing productive with it, if you don't grow, that's exactly what's happening. You're becoming a desert wasteland, just soaking up all the water and doing nothing with it. And so he continues in verse 9, completely sensitive to the tone of what he just wrote. And he says, look, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. He says, God's not unjust. He's not going to forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Church, it's all about perseverance. It's all about perseverance. And the author sees so much good in them. He sees so much promise in the fruit that they have produced. But he doesn't want them to drift. He doesn't want them to forget and to run back to old and incomplete understandings of things. He says, don't run back to repentance from acts that lead to death, like sacrificing bulls and sacrificing goats. Don't run back to the ceremonial washings of things. Don't keep camping out in the basics he says it's time to be diligent. It's time to grow up because when you do, that hope that you have for what's to come, 
It can be fully realized when you grow up in your faith. And so verse 12 harkens back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. That instead of being accused of no longer trying to understand, what's he say? He says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the best example of someone who showed faith and patience to what was promised was found in the person of Abraham, which is where the Hebrews writer goes next. That though Abraham received a promise by God or from God, it wasn't a promise that came or, or happened instantaneously. Abraham had to wait years, years for his promise to be fulfilled. But what did Abraham do? He waited with patience. He waited in faith. And when God tested Abraham's faith, and he asked him to sacrifice that son, that fulfilled promise that he gave them at 100 years old, what did he do? Abraham obeyed. And his thinking, his reasoning, we find out in Hebrews eleven nineteen, 19, was that God could even raise the dead. Abraham had so much faith in the bigness and the goodness of God. He said, that God can raise the dead. It had never happened before. But Abraham believed that he could do that. And that's why he was willing to take his promised and precious son, his one and only son, up onto that mountain. And so as Hebrews 6 draws to a close, before there's any more talk about high priests, the writer reminds us that we have that same hope in God that Abraham had. Namely, that God is a God who keeps His promises. Church, God is a God who keeps His promises. And this hope, according to verse 19, is an anchor for us. In week one of this series, we talked a little bit about some of the, the, the boating imagery, some of the nautical imagery of, of drifting and so on. And I referenced this verse. Well, here it is. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. If you don't have this, this underlined, man, I, I hope you do. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, two weeks in a row we've mentioned Melchizedek, and I keep saying later, later, later. Next week is Melchizedek week. We're going to talk about him next week. But for now, the, the point of this text is to remind us of what grounds us. It's to remind us of what anchors us, where we put our hope, that the foundation of it all is found only in the promise of God and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And so what do we do? We stay patient, church, and we stay faithful. We stay patient and we stay faithful because God will do what He said He'd do. And so until then, for all of us sitting here, for everyone watching online, for, for all Christians throughout the world, our job is to grow up. Our job is to start trying to understand, to stop being lazy, and to start producing a useful crop with what God has poured into us. God's call for you 
and for me is the same call that he had in Hebrews. It's a call to move forward. Moving forward is not always easy. It is not always sexy. But moving forward is the only way to reach the destination. It's the only way to get from point A to point B. You've got to move forward. Two weeks ago, I don't know, any NFL fans here? A few of us? Eh. A guy by the name of Alex Smith entered an NFL game. Some of you 49er fans remember that guy. It was the first game he'd been in in, in almost two years after a, an injury that he suffered that was absolutely horrific. An injury that almost cost him his life as his leg got infected. It was a compound fracture. It was, it was awful. And if you saw his leg right now, the one he's walking around today, the only way you would recognize it as a leg is that there's a foot attached to it. Otherwise, it looks completely unleg-like. And while almost every other person or athlete known to man would have retired, somewhere in the midst of, of these 13 or 19 surgeries that he faced, that guy did something different. He moved forward. He moved forward. He did the work. He made sure that he was never lazy in this process. And after nearly two years of rehab and surgery, two weeks ago he walked onto an NFL football field against the top athletes in the land, and he competed. He refused to give in to adversity. He moved forward. Church, it's not lost on me that we have every excuse. We have every reason under the sun to feel like we just don't want to try. We don't want to try to learn more. We don't want to try to serve more. We don't want to try to, to teach someone about the hope that we have in, in Jesus. But that's a thorn and thistle kind of heart, church. That's a thorn and thistle kind of heart. That's the kind of heart that says, somebody else will do it. Not me. That's somebody else's job. I'm too busy. I'm, I'm too poor. I'm too new. I'm too old. Well, wherever you are today, my encouragement and my hope for you is that you would be a person who would choose to move forward. Wherever you are, whether you're mature or you're a baby, wherever you are, choose to move forward. That's what Corey did this week when he called me. He called me, he owned his complacency, and he chose to move forward. My question is, for you and for me, will you do the same? Will we choose growth? Will we choose maturity? Will we choose solid food and faith and patience? Or, or will we become lazy and no longer try to understand? No longer try to move forward? And so church, that's the challenge that we all face. And I don't know where everyone is who's sitting here right now. And for those watching online, I don't know where you are right now. But if you've never moved forward, if you've never put your, your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to that today. I want you to have the opportunity to say, I, I, I trust you. I believe your promises, Lord. I want to invite you to move forward. I want to invite you to put on Christ in baptism. I want to invite you to move from elementary understandings to maturity. I want to invite you to move forward. And we're going to close and we're going to pray here in a moment. And then we're going to close in song. And if you'd like to make a commitment to grow, if you'd like to refocus, rededicate yourself in faith, I want to give you every opportunity to do that. I'm going to be sitting over here in just a moment. You can come talk to me during the song. You can talk to me after worship today. And if you're online, 
shoot me an email, questions at lakemercedchurch.com. I would love to have an opportunity to talk with you more about what this faith journey looks like. But church, as we close, before we go into song, can we just pray? Let's just pray for a moment. Father, I don't, I don't need to be wordy. Lord knows I've, I've been wordy enough this morning. But I just, I just ask that if you're doing anything in anyone's heart here right now, that you would give them courage, that you would give them boldness to move forward. Father, I recognize how, how easy it is and how seductive it is just, just to coast, just to put on autopilot or cruise control and just, just kind of trust you to take care of everything and hope that we make it to the finish line with, with somewhat of a decent head on our shoulders. Father, I don't want that kind of life for me. I see what Satan does. He, he comes in all the time and he says, that's no big deal, that's no big deal. Father, I, I want to be committed to you in a way that's, that, that, that's innocent and pure. I, 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 wanna, I want those, those little things that feel like little things to become big things. I want to move forward in my understanding, in my maturity in you. And Lord knows I've got a lifetime ahead of me to grow. But I pray the same for those who are watching right now, those who are here right now. Father, if you're doing something in their heart, something that, that, that their, their stubbornness or pride is, is tempted to get in the way of, Father, I pray that you would tear that down. And I pray that you would give us the courage to move forward, to enter into a place of faith, of renewed faith, of focus, of love, and of joy. Father, COVID's crazy. There's all kinds of things right now that we can't trust in. But Lord, we trust in You. You are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our praise. And I know and I believe that Jesus laid His life down. He put it all on the line so that we could walk with You in the garden, Father. And I pray for that. I pray that You would bless us today. Father, rejoice as you hear us sing worship to you. We glorify you. We magnify you. We pray for those who are hearing right now. In Jesus' name, amen.